Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning's text comes from Psalms chapters 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go on with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. As I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Justin. Good morning. <clears throat> you know, a, a minister never forgets his first funeral, and uh, my first funeral was certainly unforgettable. Uh, the deceased was a fish named Dorothy. Um, <laughs> Haddon was about three, and we got him a, a little betta fish named Dorothy. And we, we learned after, uh, after he named it, you know, Elmo had a fish named Dorothy, so Haddon had a fish named Dorothy. And we learned after we named it that you know, based on Dorothy's color and shape and size that Dorothy was probably a boy fish, but that was no matter to three-year-old Haddon. We kept calling him Dorothy, and um, you know, those were simpler times back then. So uh, one day we came came up to Haddon's room, and Dorothy was belly up in the bowl, and so uh, we decided to give him a proper burial in the backyard, so I dug a little hole, uh, made some remarks, and uh, handed Dorothy in a cup to Haddon, and he was a brave little guy. He, he just, I'll never forget, he just walked up, he'd cried earlier in the day, but in that moment he was strong, and he just walked up to the hole and just kind of dumped Dorothy in, <laughs> and then we... 
we covered Dorothy. And I was I was proud of Haddon. He was he was strong, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, I I can't say the same about his dad. I, I got I got legitimately sad uh, that day as we uh, as we buried that little fish because. I realized as a young father uh, that my son was, ex- was experiencing something in that moment that I couldn't shield him from, that, that he lived in a world where there were legitimate sorrows. And as his dad, I couldn't stop those from encroaching on his life. I remember thinking, you know, this is the first time he's cried for a legitimate reason in his entire life. <laughs> The the toddler years are full of tears, Uh, but as an adult, you look on most of those tears and think, come on, kid, this is, you know, we can get another one. It's okay, this and that, you know, everything is fine. Uh, But I remember he was, I remember watching him uh, tear up about it and thinking, he lives in a world where there's there's real sorrow, Uh, there's real pain, and things are going to happen to him and happen around him and happen to people and animals uh, whom he loves. And, and I can't do anything about it. And I just remember that, that thought kind of crushing me as a dad, realizing that, that this world is full of sorrow. As, as adults, we know that all too well. Uh, we know that we live in a fallen world. We know that this world has uh, many pains, many hurts, many griefs. And there are times in our lives when the full force of this fallen world seems to rest upon our own shoulders. Uh, maybe you've been through a season where you find yourself feeling like the, the man behind that psalm or those psalms we just read, uh, where your spirit is cast down and you're, you're wondering why. You're feeling particularly low. Uh, maybe you would, you would even call yourself depressed in a particular season. Uh, if you've been in those dark corners of human existence, you're in good company. Uh, statistics tell us that some 80 million Americans will suffer uh, or are suffering major depression right now uh, in this moment. Uh, one out of four of us will experience what doctors would call major depression over the course of our life. So if we've got 100 people here today, 25 of us are going to experience something like major depression in our lifetime. Uh, At least that many more will experience some kind of mild depression, and probably most of the rest of us will walk through folks that are going through these things uh, in our homes, uh, our family, our friends. Uh, We will know all too well the realities of a fallen world and the sorrows that it can bring upon us and and those unique seasons when they seem to sit so heavy upon our own shoulders. If you're in a season like that now, or you've had an intense season like that before, uh, I think you'll find the words of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 to be especially comforting. It's a good place to turn in the midst of a season of sorrow. So I want us to take some time going through it today. Um, <clears throat> I want to just say a couple things about it on the front end to kind of orient ourselves to what we're looking at here, because I think the circumstances are especially helpful in helping us connect this to our own realities of, of dealing with sorrow, sorrow in this world. So uh, we're looking at two Psalms today, uh, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, uh, for the simple reason that the, the rhythm and repetition of the two psalms suggests that they were probably in maybe one song to begin with. 
And so you may have recognized a common refrain in there that's stated three times, twice in Psalm 42, once at the end of Psalm 43. And I think it just kind of makes sense to treat them all together. In the Psalms, they are the beginning of book two, which is significant. You may have noticed in your Bible before the Psalms are divided into five books. Uh, they're not arranged chronologically or by author. They're arranged a bit by theme. And so in books one and two, you tend to have uh, the psalmist dealing with the sorrows of a fallen world, the things we're, we're talking about, the difficulties of this life. In books three and four, the psalms tend to cry out for justice, pray for deliverance, and look to the Lord for help. Uh, with, with those things, or, yeah, with those things, and then book five is almost exclusively celebration. It, it's really uh, praising God for answering the prayers of the previous four books. And so, right now we're at at the uh, beginning of book two, which means we're in the depths of the depth, uh, the depths of the depths. Uh, we are in in the most difficult part of the Psalter, where the the tone and mood of the Psalms is exceedingly low. The author of these psalms, uh, we're told, are the sons of Korah. We don't know a whole lot about these guys. Uh, they were musicians. They were singers in the temple. And that's important because in these particular psalms, they're writing from a place far from Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So they're in captivity. They're far from home. And that leads them to feeling cut off from God. And that creates this sense of sorrow that they're dealing with there. And they compose in Psalm uh, 42 what uh, the little heading tells us is a, a mass guilt. Uh, what that means is it's a teaching psalm, meaning uh, these guys were going through a really difficult time in their life, and they wrote these songs to reflect on that and as a means of, of teaching others how to work through these things. So there's a didactic purpose to these psalms. One commentator called them a case study for a downcast spirit. All right, so if you're in the midst of a season where you feel the weight of a fallen world resting heavily on your own shoulders this morning, this is a good place to be. Uh, Psalm 42 and 43, uh, you will find some good company here because here is a man from whom we can learn a whole lot. Uh, he's far from where he wants to be. He feels a great distance between himself and God. Maybe this sounds familiar to some of you today. He is dejected and full of sorrow, and yet he turns to the Lord. And so I think there's much we can learn from him. So I want to look at this in, in just kind of three sections, uh, almost treating it like three stanzas of a song, because I think, again, that's how it was originally put together. So stanza one is verses one through five, and it deals primarily with his condition as he's, he's looking around his life and kind of surveying the scene. And again, it's quite bleak. We heard as Justin was reading that for us. He gives us this vivid imagery of how he is thirsting for God. He's like a deer panting for streams of water. His question there, when shall I come and appear before God? It suggests he's been suffering a while. Right? This is not a, a knee-jerk reaction to something that just happened. This is someone who has been wallowing in the depths of despair for some time, and, and he is, he's trying to lift himself out of that as he's processing through the, all that he is going through. How bad is it? Well, look at verse 3. His tears have been his food. It's a pretty difficult spot. We don't know exactly what this means. Does it mean he's too sad to eat? Uh, does it mean he's too poor to buy food? 
Is his grief so overwhelming that his tears never cease? They are like his food, continuously pouring forth. However you take the words, the man is in a pitiful state. He is in a, a sorrowful state. And yet others are taking advantage of his situation. Look at uh, the end of verse 3 there. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So he is in the depths of despair and his enemies are coming at him and saying, if God is so good, where is he now? Perhaps you've experienced that yourself as you've gone through your own difficult seasons. And as he begins to reflect on these things, the memory of when times were better actually make, makes things worse in his own mind. Look at verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. And then he talks about going with the throng of people into the house of God. Remember he was a temple singer? We talked about that. Uh, imagine the contrast of where he's at now. He used to lead others through the temple in corporate worship and celebration, the greatness of God in, in the temple that sits atop Jerusalem. Now he sits in a lonely place in tattered clothes, far from home and far from the God he loves and longs to be with. He is in a tough and dark place. And, and again, I think the scene we see here in these first four verses is really helpful for us for understanding what's going on when someone uh, we love or maybe even when we ourselves are dealing with what today we call depression. I mean, depression feels like a cloud hovering over us. It, it separates us from God. It separates us from other people. It leaves you feeling lonely and afraid. You, you're longing for the clouds to part. And yet it seems like every prayer is going unanswered as if the things you're trying are not working at all. And sometimes the memories of better days make things even worse. As if, you're, uh, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you think to yourself, I ought not to feel like this. I ought to be joyful. I ought to be happy in God. And yet I just don't feel happy today. There's much on my mind. This sorrow is sitting heavy on my shoulders. I'm hurting. Now I feel bad for hurting, and that makes me feel even worse. And the cycle just kind of goes on and on, and we get deeper and deeper in despair. Well, if you find yourself in a place like this, the first thing I would want to say to you this morning is that you're not alone. Uh, you, you catch that, I hope, just from the fact that we're reading these words in the Psalms. But you can think about the Scriptures. You can think about all the saints of God who walk through difficult seasons of suffering. I would probably think most of all of Job, right? When he lost his family, his livelihood. But we could think of Elijah hiding in the cave because he's fearful for, of what God has in store for him. We could think of Hannah longing to be pregnant, longing to have a child and begging God to provide. We could think of David in the depths of sorrow over his own sin and, and other psalms that we could look at here in book two and book one of the psalms especially. We can think of Paul in the New Testament. He's pleading with God to remove this thorn from his flesh. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. You think of Jesus. I don't know if Jesus experienced depression, but I think he knew full well the sorrow of difficult times. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You think about Jesus weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. Think about him hanging on the cross. We could put some of these very words on the lips of Jesus on the cross and it would make complete sense. He's thirsting for the presence of God. 
He is longing to be renewed with his father and to be reunited with his father, and yet he feels cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus knows what you are going through when you're going through the depths of despair. Others have been there, and we can indeed learn from them. So we look at verse 5 there. We see our first hint of hope in the psalm. The first four verses are miserable, but we see our first little hint of hope there in verse 5. And it starts kind of like we were talking about last week as he stops listening to himself and he starts talking to himself. He says, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation, my God. So he, he starts talking to himself, and he starts probing his soul and asking, why are you downcast? And that may sound like a silly question. You just heard his circumstances. He's in a pretty miserable place. It's pretty obvious why he's downcast, right? But it's, it's a good thing to ask yourself this question, especially if you're in a season of something you might call depression, study your depression and ask questions of your soul. Why are you downcast? What is causing this? And as you think about this, I think you'll find in general, there are about five broad categories of causes for depression. And I'll just mention these briefly and then say a couple things about how to sift through these in your own life or maybe help someone else who's going through this right now. So five potential causes of depression. The first is our circumstances. All right, certainly the things that happen in our life can bring us down. And grief and sorrow, the, the loss of a friend, the, the loss of a job. Just looking at the world around you and, and seeing all the pain and suffering. Circumstances can bring you down and cause your soul to be downcast. Our bodies have an impact on how we feel. We are complex creatures made of body and soul, two parts to us. I think the body impacts the soul and the soul impacts the body. I think we can see both of those in the scriptures. Depression almost always has some physical element to it, something that you can address in the category of the physical world, of your physical body that impacts how you are feeling in a given season. Now, it it may be as simple as, are you getting enough sleep? Are are you eating well? Are Are you being wise with taking care of your body? It may be as complex as, you know, do you need to have some tests ran and, and have and have kind of a full medical workup, you know, to see if there's anything going on. If I if I sit down with a person to counsel them and they and they start to talk about depression, one of my first questions is, have you been to a doctor? You know, can we can we just get a doctor to give you sort of a full checkup and see if there's anything going on in your body that might be causing this in some way? And there's often some sort of physical cause. It's very rare, in my opinion, that it's only a physical cause. So I think you have to be careful who you go to and, and who you talk to about things like this because your body and spirit. And there's certain people very well trained to address the body who may be tempted to ignore the spirit. You have to think, think about both. So could be your circumstances, could be your bodies, it could be our souls. It could be something spiritual going on. could be guilt over sin. could just be a case of bad theology, you know, where you're, you're thinking about God as leading you astray, and you're, you're thinking of God in, in some sort of way that's bringing you low because 
uh, you're mistaken about the character of God and how he relates to us. It could just be a season of spiritual dryness where you're, you're not going to the Lord for the things that you need from God. Uh, you're not panting for him like a deer panting for living streams. You're neglecting him. And, and that's maybe leading you to feel a certain way. Uh, very rare that it's all physical. And I would say also very rare that it's all spiritual. I said, I don't think that the Christian answer to this conversation is you need to repent of your sin and you'll feel better. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. Uh, but it's very rare that there's not a spiritual element uh, going on. Uh, so circumstances, bodies, souls, the fourth cause could be our enemy. And you think about Paul when he talked about the thorn in the flesh. He said it was a messenger of Satan. He recognized that the enemy was at work. Spiritual warfare was happening and that was causing him to feel a certain way. So Satan could be at work in your depression. And then lastly, our God. Our God. We, we, we have to believe that God has a sovereign purpose for these things. And for some of us, he has wired us in a certain way that we are going to be more susceptible to, to a downcast spirit. Uh, there are many uh, stories in church history, uh, many great saints that you could look to, uh, as, as vivid examples of someone that God has just constituted in a certain way that their spirit just stayed pretty low on a good day. And a bad day, it went really low. Uh, that just seems to be how God made them or maybe what God was taking them through in a particular season. So if you're in the midst of a season like this, I think you have to think through all five of those causes. And I want to give you a couple of cautions in doing that. One is... Don't be too simplistic, okay? So I already suggested that a little bit already. Uh, don't assume that you're just going to trace things back to one single thing. You're going to fix that and everything's going to be better. We are complex creatures and depression is a complex problem. So if you find a physical issue, and maybe, maybe you need a medicine, maybe you need a, cha a change in diet and sleep patterns or whatever, don't assume that just addressing that is going to take care of all of it. Uh, if you find sin that you, you've been kind of holding back and you've resisted repenting and you confess it to a brother or sister in the Lord, that's going to make you feel better in the moment, but that may not help if there are other things going on. So think multifaceted causes, not simplistic, you know, single cause kind of solution. The other thing is pinning down the ultimate cause is usually not as important as actually pursuing progress. Right, so so don't, don't approach the causes as if you're looking for the one magic bullet that's going to make you feel perfect tomorrow. The realities of depression is it, it's usually a, a long winding road down. And, and my experience personally, as well as my experience walking with other people through this, is it's usually a long winding experience back up. And, and so you ought not to kid yourself or discourage yourself by thinking you're going to find one magic bullet, one simple solution that's just going to change everything to get you back to how things used to be in some way. But you, you do want to think about all these causes, and you do want to ask yourself that question, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then in the midst of that, you want to speak truth to yourself, just like the psalmist does. Hope in God. We can't hear the words here in their musical context, but if, if we could hear the actual song he was singing and not just read the lyrics on the page like we're doing now, in my mind, this, this part of the song is very soft. I think, I think he's whispering these words. I think it's all he can do to get them out of his mouth because he knows they're the right things to say, 
but if he's honest, he's just not quite feeling them yet. But he's still speaking them. He's trying to lean into them and he's trying to make some amount of progress. Even in the midst of darkness, he's trying to grab hold of some truth. Even in the midst of this difficult condition. So that's stanza one. In stanza two, we begin to turn toward his comfort as he starts to look to his God. And so realizing that his soul is downcast, he says, my soul is cast down within me. He then looks to God. He says, therefore, I remember you. So he's honest about his condition, but he looks to his comfort in the Lord. Now he starts to talk about the Jordan and deep calling to deep. I think what's going on there is that he is in the north and he is at the mouth of the Jordan near Mount Hermon. Uh, These things don't mean a whole lot to us as uh, Carolinians, but if we were ancient Israelites, we would recognize that Mount Hermon is way up here. Jerusalem is way down here on Mount Zion, and that's where the temple of God is. He is a temple singer. His purpose in life is to be in the temple singing praises to God, and he's far away in a distant land, most likely because he's been captured by a foreign enemy who's taken him there. This is a big problem for him. And we think he's at the mouth of the river because he's, he's looking at a waterfall, right? And he's reflecting on it. Deep calls to deep. And it reminds him of how his sorrow is just crashing over him, wave after wave after wave. But the point is, even though he's far from home, even though he's not where he wants to be, he looks to the Lord. And this language of, of distance and space uh, is often helpful for us when we're thinking about Depression, we, we describe it often in sort of spatial language, like I'm in a dark place. I, I feel as if God is distant from me. And we describe it in sort of a literal physical sense, even though we're talking about spiritual realities. For the Israelite, it was a bit more of a literal physical reality. But that helps us relate a bit to the psalmist and thinking of it in those terms. I think that's helpful. Uh, my, my favorite kind of physical depiction Favorite's probably not the right word, but the the physical depiction of depression that I find most helpful uh, comes from John Bunyan in uh, his book, Pilgrim's Progress. I've I've mentioned that to you guys a few times. It's an allegory of the Christian life. Uh, When Bunyan uh, wanted to take his pilgrim through depression, uh, he had him captured by a giant. The giant's name was Despair. The giant threw him in a dungeon at the bottom of Doubting Castle. Isn't that a good picture for what depression feels like? feels like you've been taken captive by someone who's bigger and stronger than you and you're pressed down into this reality you don't want to know and you're locked in a dungeon beneath layers and layers of doubt. I think that's helpful for understanding what depression feels like. But as we see in the psalm here, and as we will see in Bunyan when we return to that idea in a minute, even when we feel as if God is far away, we have to remind ourselves of the truth that He is actually incredibly near to us. And that's what the psalmist says there in verse 8. He says, By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. Remember the day and night His tears never stopped? Now it's the day and night the Lord's song never ceases. So just as your sorrow continues, just like it feels like it's breaking on you wave after wave, crashing upon you, so the steadfast love of God never stops singing over you. And the picture there is exactly what the depressed person needs to hear. Uh, his depression isn't as simple as just, I feel bad, okay, give me one simple solution, and now everything's going to be better. But it's, it's this wave after wave of sorrow. It's, it's the weight of a fallen world 
forcing itself down on you and you need someone, whether you're speaking it to yourself or someone from outside is speaking it into your life to say, the Lord's love is with you. Even though you feel far away, he is near. Son of Korah, even though you're way up at Mount Hermon and you feel like the Lord is locked in Jerusalem, he is near to you. His love is singing over you, even in a distant land. So as faith continues to build, to build, and we see that same refrain again there in verse 11, where he repeats the same words we saw up in verse 5. So that's the end of stanza 2, his comfort. Uh, then we turn to stanza 3, and briefly want to look at his confidence uh, as he begins to, to look ahead to what might get him out of this deep and dark place. The, the language of his prayers here begin to grow more defiant. And, and I like the, the gritty, bold sense of his words here. Uh, they're, they're gutsy. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. It, this is a different tone than when, when he was complaining about people uh, taunting him a few verses ago. Now he is demanding of God, we might say, vindicate me and defend my cause against an ungodly people. His small steps of faith in the previous stanzas are leading to larger leaps of faith now. He is standing up stronger uh, in his own faith. And he's praying that God would light up a path for him to return home. Again, remember, he's far away and he wants to get back to Jerusalem, right? And he's praying that God would lead, it, would lead the way and light up a path. And listen to how he describes it. Listen to the, the progress he anticipates happening in verse 3. He says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. There's this, this progress here that, again, to an ancient Israelite would make total sense because he says, We're gonna, you're going to lead me to the hill, Right, Jerusalem set atop a mountain. And then to your dwelling, within the midst of Jerusalem, there was a temple. And then I will go to the altar of my God. In the middle of that temple, there was an altar. And that altar was the place in which Israelites went to meet face to face with their God. There will go to the altar of God, my exceeding joy. How did that word get into these Psalms? Joy. All of a sudden, he's anticipating this moment. He's not in it yet. But he's anticipating this moment when he will tread up the hill, he will enter into the dwelling, he will fall before the altar, and he will experience God. And he will be again with God, his exceeding joy. But notice how it begins. It begins with a plea for God to come to him. Because he realizes he can't get to God himself. That's what the dungeon of despair feels like, right? He realizes, I'm in a dark place. So he prays, God, send out your light. He acknowledges, I don't know the way out of here. So he prays, God, lead me in your truth. He confesses, I cannot get to you. But in the depths of despair, he prays, would you come to me? Would you send your light? Would you send your truth? And would you lead me home? And as he begins to grasp onto that hope, he experiences the beginning of freedom. The very beginning, not the end, 
but the beginning. This is like what um, Bunyan wrote into his story in Pilgrim's Progress. So uh, the, the two pilgrims, they were named Christian and Hopeful. They're captured by the giant despair. They're cast into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. They're kept there for several days. And the, the giant is, um, is attacking them. He's, he's beating them. He's, he's taunting them. He's trying to convince them to do all manner of, of horrible things to themselves and to each other. And they're really in the depths of despair. And as you're reading it, you're thinking, how are they going to get out of this? I mean, how, how is this going to end? And then Saturday about midnight, the dawn of Sunday morning, which in Bunyan's mind, the Lord's Day, very significant for him, the day in which Christians would normally gather, gather around the Word and gather in prayer and gather to encourage one another. And that day, they began to talk about what if God were to do something what if God were to help us in some amazing way? What if, what if God were to break in with his light and penetrate this darkness and conquer this giant on our behalf? And just beginning to think of those possibilities and beginning to th- think of that, uh, that option that maybe there is a light after the darkness, Christian remembers something. And he says, oh, I'm such a fool. I've forgotten. I have a key in my pocket. Now, remember, this is all an allegory, right? So everything represents something he has. I have a key in my pocket, and it's called promise. And I'm told it will unlock every door in Doubting Castle. I share that story with my students, and sometimes they think that it's too simplistic. You know, I mean, so, so we just, we've just got to find the one key. We turn the, I mean, that's almost the opposite of what I said 20 minutes ago. You find, the, find the key, turn the, turn the lock, and then... Smooth sailing. Uh, it's all the way to freedom. But Bunyan was not trying to be simplistic. Uh, Bunyan actually suffered a great deal uh, of personal uh, depression himself. He, he knew exactly what you're going through and more. What he was trying to help us see, though, is how simply the Lord can lead us forward by his light and truth. And when, we, when we turn to God, when we open our eyes to his word, when we open our hearts to him in prayer, when we grab hold of that promise, it's like finding a key that begins to unlock a door. It's not the end of freedom. It's not the full experience of freedom, but it is the first step. And when you're in the depths of despair, that's what you need to look for. You need to look for that first step home in the language of Psalm 43. Because when we get to the end of this psalm, as he says these words one final time, again, as I'm imagining this song, I think they're much louder this time. I think he's shouting them. He's no longer whispering hope in God. He's no longer faintly saying these words he said time and time again, but he is shouting them. I will again praise him. Someday I will be with my God again in my home, my exceeding joy. I will know the joy of knowing him once more someday. So the Psalms begin in despair, they end in confidence, but here's the thing you've got to see. Here's the thing we've got to see. If if you're in the midst of a season of depression yourself this morning, if you're in the midst of trying to help somebody else, here's what we have to see. The Psalm ends in confidence, but the man's circumstances have not changed. He's still far away. He's not in Jerusalem at the end of it. But he has a hope that he's found the key that's going to start to unlock the door that's going to be his first step to freedom. And that's enough for him in 
the moment. He's still far from home, but he's anticipating a day when the the darkness will lift, the clouds will part, and he'll see the light of the Lord again. And when I I think about that first funeral uh, for that sweet little fish, um, you know, it it really did crush me to realize I couldn't uh, protect Haddon from uh, the realities of a fallen world. That was um, was a hard moment just to realize that he's going to suffer. And I can't stop it. Uh, but as I think about it, and as I've thought about it in the context of this, it, it does give me hope because I know that God can protect him. God can stop the suffering. God can end the agony. He can bring an end to our despair. And because he can, and because he, he loves you dearly, If you're in the midst of a season where it feels like it's not stopping, you've got to trust that he has a purpose for it. You've got to trust that for some reason, he's allowing you to continue to suffer for this season. And you don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, You don't know when it's going to end. But you have to believe that he has a reason for it. So in the meantime, I want to encourage you uh, gently and And yet I want to challenge you to continue to lean into the means of grace, that key that Bunyan's pilgrim found in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Study the word. Sit with the Lord in prayer. Be with his people in healthy and godly fellowship. Take communion with hope. Someday you'll sit at the table of the Lord and you will experience the exceeding joy of being with your God even though now you feel the challenges and the pain and the sorrow of living in a fallen world that's far, far from home. So we, we take communion here every week, and I'm, I'm so glad we do because I need it every week. Uh, it, it's a reminder to us uh, that we do not walk through this world alone. There's nothing we suffer through that, that Christ has not experienced. He, he knows our suffering. He's able to relate to us as, a, as one who walked in the flesh and felt these same realities. And yet he carried our burdens to the cross that we might be set free from them and we might experience final and ultimate deliverance. And so uh, if you're a Christian this morning, whether you are a happy, joyful Christian today or whether you are in a hard and difficult spot, if you are trusting the Lord, if you can whisper the words to your soul, hope in God, uh, you can take communion today with great joy. Knowing there will be a day when you will sit down face to face with your exceeding joy and experience Him in full. So I'm going to invite you to do that as we uh, sing and pray now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the hope we have in you. Thank you that we can come to you in our darkest hours. Thank you that we, have, we don't have to um, pull ourselves together first. We don't have to find all the answers before we turn to you. We don't have to make ourselves right, but we can come to you in our brokenness. We can come to you in our sorrow. We can come to you in our shame. We can come to you with our physical ailments. We can come to you when, when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances, overcome by the enemy. 
we can come to you and we can cry out to you and we can beg of you, Lord, send out your light and your truth and may it lead us home. I pray for those in our midst this morning who may be in a dungeon of despair right now. I pray that they would find hope in you, that they would find healing in this church, that we would be a people that would rally around each other and strengthen one another in our darkest days, that we would be open about these things and willing to to talk about them freely, that we would comfort one another with the comfort we receive from you. Thank you for being the God who comforts. Lord, we offer you praise as we await a day when we will praise you fully and rightly in your presence forevermore. Amen.